Christopher Pellegrini is the founder of Honkaku Spirits, an artisanal Japanese spirits company. He has been making alcohol since he was a teen, brewing beer at a local distillery where he grew up in Vermont. After moving to Tokyo, he discovered shochu and awamori. He felt that Western markets were missing out on these traditional Japanese spirits. Through Honkaku Spirits, Christopher is now on a mission to increase global knowledge of these beverages and continue to shape the opinions of these unique categories of drinks in the West. This episode, you will hear his story about discovering shochu, what made him start Honkaku Spirits, as well as what it's like to work and live in Japan. I was teaching in South Korea and Boy Meets Girl. And then、um, my now wife, so this has a very happy ending, obviously, but、uh, she wanted to, she really wanted to go to Japan. And I just wanted to stay with her and I wanted to see her out of her comfort zone, honestly. She had never lived outside of Korea before. And so I was like, great, Japan sounds lovely. Don't know anything about it, but let's go. And、um, she is kind of a language monster. So she、uh, taught herself pretty much perfect Japanese before moving there. And then,、um, you know, before too long, ended up in grad school. And, and the rest is、uh, it's a very, very involved story. But, anyways, the way that I was going to support us while we were here when we first moved was to continue teaching.、Um, I had taught in the States. I moved to Korea and was teaching. And then I switched over to Japan. And once I realized we were going to be there for more than one year, then I leveled up and, and ended up at a university and was there for 20 years. Okay. And w- when you say you leveled up, is it you went to teach at a university or you went to study at a university? No, I went to, went to become a professor at university.、Um, I was at a language school before that, just thinking that I was going to be in the country temporarily. And. You know, it's a, it, you're right. A lot of people, there are a lot of folks who come in and do that kind of job, not just in Japan, but in other parts of the world as well. And I don't know if that's how most people come into the country. Honestly, it's just one of the more visible ways.、Um, there's certainly a lot of investment bankers over here in Tokyo, and there's、Definitely. a lot of,、um, you know, people from all walks of life doing all manner of different vocations. And I guess one thing that, You know, when you're, when you're in your junior, senior year, third, fourth year of university in the States anyway, you start to get the emails from the recruiting companies. They're like, hey, how about a year in Taiwan or how about a year in, in Japan、um, teaching English? And it's a really f- exciting opportunity for a lot of people, as it was for me. Although I went into education in the States first, didn't love it, and then ended up in Korea after that. Yeah, there's, there's like a different moral fiber in Japan where students actually really want to learn, I feel. And,、uh, you know, in same with the UK as, as it is in the US, you get difficult students a lot more often, you get a lot more pushback, and you, you get a lot of kind of a, a different sense of being a teacher. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of hardship in being a teacher in the West. But whereas in the East, you know, it's kind of in their, in their kind of cultural fiber to be like, you go to school, you behave, you do this, you do that. And yeah, I'm sure there is difficult students there, but I, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm asking a weird question. If it, is it a bit like you, you feel like you have students that are more willing to learn when you're teaching type thing over there? Or? That's a, it's, a really, it's really complicated. The, answering that question、yeah. is difficult because it really matters where you, you know, which educational institution you happen to have signed on with.、Um, I was, I was in tertiary education for a long time. And, you know, fortunately, I was at a very, very good university. Some, would, some have called it the Harvard of Japan, which is a bunch of baloney, but it's、um, a very good school with very high powered students coming in. Now, having said that, you still get a lot of, well, let me put it this way.、Um, probably about 10 years ago, I was teaching a lecture. Uh, mostly related to marketing. And I was do- doing a lecture, and one of the students showed up to class with a pillow. <laughs> But he just I'm straight up. It wasn't to sit on.、Uh, no, it was not a butt cushion. It was, it was <laughs> absolutely to get some shut eye. And that's now, I never allowed that in my class. But you, if you walk down the halls of the university and you peer into some of these classrooms, There's a large percentage of the students that are, are not engaged whatsoever. And this is a、mm. really, really common,、um, whingy story for a lot, of, a lot of university professors, especially at 
at you know I don't I don't I don't know how to put this uh, politely, but at perhaps less um, desirable universities, I guess, or that's not that's the worst thing to say. What do how do I put it? That at universities that aren't as hard to get into, and yeah. you know what I had a I don't actually know I don't want to misattribute this. I don't think it was my student. I think it was somebody else's student said that. Is a colleague of mine who said they had a student who described university in Japan as universities are in an amazing business. They sell students four years of time. And it's the four years before they <laughs> yeah. join society, you know, before they get yeah. their first real job. And so in that sense, and this is a huge generalization, but in that sense, university yeah. is a little bit of a vacation um, for a yeah. lot of folks here. Especially, and if they've yeah. gotten into a great university, they know they're probably going to coast into a half decent job. And mm. so they take four, sometimes five years of just kind of enjoying themselves, you know, after really, yeah. you know, putting the, the pedal to the metal during their last year or so of high school. Yeah. Uh, obviously, if you're a teacher, you're, you're stressed out, you know, marking period comes here, goes there. Mm -hmm. You might want to go home and enjoy a nice drink. <laughs> and so I guess this is me kind of trying to slowly transition into <laughs> the business that you run. Well done. But, you know, one thing that people kind of don't really know or might know about Japan is they have quite a big drinking culture out there. Sure. A lot of Asian countries have a big drinking culture. But for you, you went out there and you saw the, the breadth and the wealth of spirits available out there. And how did you kind of get to where you're at now, which is starting Honkaku Spirits? Well, it's, yeah, it was a, it was a journey. It is a journey and I'm still probably just in the middle of it. I'm at the beginning of it, honestly. I brewed beer in the States for a long time. Uh, it started out as a secret hobby. I was a home brewer when I was in mm. uh, early in my high school years. And then my parents found out that I was home brewing and they were not very impressed. Um, and so I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed made, making a small batch drinks. And I used to go to the local pub and I would pay for their, I would pay the deposit on all their empty bottles because heavy bar bottles are great for homebrewing because they don't shatter not yeah. or almost never. And so I would go get those and I would, I would, um, you know, take the labels off them, wash them impeccably and then bottle my own beer with it. Um, and so I, I parlayed that experience once my parents shut down my little illicit operation. Um, I parlayed that into a, an apprenticeship, quote unquote, um, at the local craft brewery. And at that point, we weren't calling it craft. It was a microbrewery is what they were calling it back yeah. in the 90s. And so um, I was basically learning all different aspects of working the floor. And I was doing bottling and kegging and and uh, everything, you know, learning a little bit about the engineering of the place, uh, moonlighting as kind of a brewing apprentice a little bit, although I was pretty young. So everybody was like, I don't know how I feel about this with the kid up on the brewing platform. Um, I was palletizing sometimes. I was wrecking my back, stacking cases of, of beer. And then one crazy week, one unbelievable week, probably the unluckiest week in, in the CEO's existence up to that point, our number one brewer um, wrecked his back and he couldn't left, lift heavy bags of grain of uh, malted barley. And then in the same damn calendar week, our number two brewer left the state to join the circus. And that <laughs> is not a joke. left his number and, three. <laughs> and so they, that was it. It was a small brewery. And both of yeah. our brewers were gone. And the CEO, who had been a home brewer, but wasn't about to like, you know, flip his life upside down and go back and get back on the brewing tower was <laughs> all hands meeting. Does anybody in here know how to make beer? And little teenage me is like, oh, ooh, ooh. and I was the only one who knew how, who had any experience with making beer in, you know, on the floor. And that's how yeah. I became the youngest commercial brewer, legal brewer in the United States. Um, I was too young oh, to wow. drink what I was making. And, um, yeah. That experience was um, just a watershed moment for me. I, you, I was so proud of my job. I was so excited to go to work because I was, you know, I had kind of somehow almost mistakenly made the leap from going from mm. furtive homebrewer, closet homebrewer to like legit teenage 
brewer at a yeah. at a brewery that people would line up to fill their growlers with the stuff that we were making. So I was very happy with my job. And I kept doing that for any any chance I had. Um, eventually, I did go to college. I went to undergrad and and couldn't moved out of the state. And only when anytime I came back, they're like, "Hey, we're short staffed. Can you please?" And I would go mm-hmm. back and help during you know vacation during the summer. I would work there and and so anyway, sorry. That was a really long way to set up the answer to your question. Um, fast forward several years, and I'm with um, my my wife. Uh, she was my girlfriend back then. And she wanted to come yeah. to Japan, as I said before. We ended up here. I knew a little bit about sake. I had never heard of any of Japan's indigenous spirits, but yeah. I was studying sake because this is made in small batches by you know family-run breweries. I want to learn about this. Yeah. I had a really dim view of it in the states because nobody knew how to handle or serve sake in the states. Yeah. So it has to be served warm, isn't it? Well, that's what that's how everybody was doing it. And I did I realized later that the reason why they do that is to cover up that the fact that it's gone off. And, oh. and so we used to call it dirty feet in the States. It was so mm. foul. And mm. so I moved over here. And of course, in the winter, they do heat it up, but it's it's generally you drink it either at the warmest room temperature, but usually it's chilled over here and it's amazing it's a beautiful category and so for a few months i was learning about that but then one fateful evening i was i was at a an izakaya japanese gastro pub near the station where we were living and i was waiting for my girlfriend to get off of work so i could kind of walk with her home it was just an annoying stretch of road with no sidewalk and and you know what am i going to do if she gets if she gets mauled by a bus so yeah. um, I would go wait, you know, I, opportunistic. I would go wait at the izakaya <laughs> and yeah. I was studying sake. And one day he pushed shochu in front of me. So shochu, S-H-O-C-H-U, Japan's indigenous spirit or one of its two indigenous spirits. And shochu, yeah. not soju. There's a, there's a Korean um, spirit called soju, S-O-J-U. This is S-H-O-C-H-U, a little bit of a, pronunciation lesson for folks out there how to read japanese words it's actually surprisingly easy because there's only five vowel sounds there's an a e i o u and if you pronounce them kind of like spanish or a little bit like maybe italian you've basically got it right a is a e is e i is e o is o and u is u it's easy s-h-o-c-h-u shochu and one nice mm. thing, maybe not nice, it's a little hard to get used to. There's no real um, word or syllable stress in Japanese. It's a relatively flat language. Korean was the same, actually. Yes. And so you don't need to really push anything in the words or in the sentences unless you're upset. Then I guess you stress some of the syllables. Um, but yeah. it's a pretty easy language to pronounce semi-accurately if you just keep those vowel sounds in mind and, and don't stray from that, um, they don't change. They're, yeah. they're very strict. They stay in mm. a, e, u, e, o is how they say it over here. Um, and so shochu is this amazingly diverse spirits category that was int- I was introduced to just because the bartender was bored one night while I was waiting for my girlfriend yeah. to get off of work. And here's what it is. Shochu is a spirit. Okay, it's not it's not sake, it's not beer, it's not wine. It's from the spirits class, so it's it's you know like the beautiful the gins and the tequilas and the and the whiskeys of the world. It's from that family. It is a spirit. Mm-hmm. It's distilled, and there's it's both very very diverse as a spirits class, but then it's also quite well regulated because in Japan we love rules. So yes. the the uh, <laughs> So it can be made from 53 different ingredients as approved by the yeah. tax office. There's a list of ingredients. Yeah. But the way that it's made, the process is kind of tightly restricted. So it has to be made from these ingredients and they're koji, K-O-J-I. That's a, another very important part of Japanese cuisine. And yeah. it can only be single pot distilled. So one time through right. a pot still. So what that means for, for the folks who understand whiskey and understand pot distillation is the rare thing about this is that it's 
single pot distilled, one pass. And right. what you have is what you get. You get what you get is right. relatively low uh, alcohol content, but very, very high ester, very high right. aromatics from the fermentation, from the fermented mash. And okay. so when I was at this izakaya, the, the bartender pushed a glass of uh, barley shochu in front of me, just kind of as a joke. He didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any Jap Japanese. And so he said, here, drink that weirdo. So I took a sniff. I was like, that's not sake. He's like, he pointed, shochu. I was like, I have no idea what that is. It sounded like soju to me. And I had just moved from Korea. So I was skeptical. But he said, shochu. Yeah. And I smelled it. I was like, oh, huh. that's bready and a little bit fruity. Interesting. So I took a sip. I was like, oh, that's not bad at all. And he was surprised. He expected me to hate it. So he's like, okay, let me find yeah. something that's going to bug him. So he got a sweet potato <laughs> shochu down. And sweet potato is kind of, there's a little bit more of a learning curve there. It's hmm. it's not for novice shochu drinkers. It's it's much more of a, it's a later stage thing. Now it's the most popular type of shochu in Japan by sales volume, yeah. but you kind of yeah. graduate to it. It's kind of like, you know, you go from blended scotch and then eventually you get towards the peat. And at first the peat is too medicinal, but then eventually one day it just clicks and you're like, oh, yeah. I need more peat. Um, it's once, the same. You, once your palate is settled into these adult flavors, you go, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I liken it to like cigars. You start out with a very mild cigar that you get to heavier and heavier, thicker ring gauges, all that kind of and stuff. And it's the same thing with hops too, right? Um, you know, it's just mm. like hoppier and hoppier IPAs. Once you get used to it, you kind of need it. And, and when you don't get it, there's something so lacking. It tastes very thin. Yes. Yeah, it tastes yes. like, oh, something's missing. This there's is no two body dimensional. to this drink type. Yeah. Exactly. So the sweet potato was the second one. And that one, I, I didn't even sip it. I just took one whiff. I was like, oh, geez, that's not shochu. And, and sweet potato shochu, <laughs> sweet potato shochu yeah. can be um, pretty funky, pretty spicy, pretty earthy on the nose, especially the old school styles. And there was such a stark contrast from the barley shochu to the sweet potato. It's like, there's no way those are the same thing. He's like, and he yeah. protested. He's like, no, they are. They are. They're the same thing. So shochu, yeah. shochu. I was like, how? And then after that, he gave me a rice shochu and then a kokuto sugar shochu. And I believe the last one, and memory doesn't serve very well, but I believe the fifth one was a buckwheat shochu or, or soba. Right. You, maybe you've had soba yeah. noodles before. Um, so yeah. made from that from that soba grain soba is a seed isn't it buckwheat is a seed anyways whatever and they were all they're all clear they're all clear mm. as water but they all taste like what they're made from and mm. as you can imagine rice tastes very different from sweet potatoes which tastes very different from from barley so i was like what is this and this was back in early 2003 which coincidentally was the uh, right around the time when sales of shochu eclipsed for the first time ever sales of sake domestically in Japan. In other words, these spirits outsell sake here in Japan. Isn't that crazy? Why is that? Is it because it is it because it's got like a lower alcohol content or something, or is it just because of the flavor? It's. I think there's a couple of there's a couple of big reasons. Number one, sake sales had been tumbling for a couple of decades. It was suffering from a bit of a uh, image problem. It was an old man's drink. Right. And so mm -hmm. younger generations weren't drinking it. And right. shochu, which up until that, that point, until the nineties had been very much kind of like, kind of like bourbon was, um, through the sixties mm. and seventies, it was kind of a blue collar drink from down South. And, um, and so folks up in the major cities in Japan, and I'm talking about Osaka, Tokyo, Yokohama, they weren't, they didn't drink it at all. They didn't know anything about it. It started, that started yeah. to change in the seventies and, and eventually people found out about it in the big cities and they just couldn't get enough of it. It is higher alcohol. Shochu is, is almost always 25% ABV, whereas sake is usually between 14 and 16%. Yeah. Um, but it is consumed in ways that bring the alcohol down to sake territory. So, Right. Um, at a minimum, it's enjoyed on the rocks, but more commonly, you have some dilution. It can be cool water di mm. dilution. Um, I really love it with hot water dilution. There's a lot of highballs that are made with, with shochu. There's so many different ingredients and so many different flavors within this spectrum that you can really find something that speaks to you. 
So while you might not love sweet potato shochu, which is an immense category, there are thousands of brands produced every year, but you might really, really dig, you know, a sesame shochu that, that wow. has, if you, you've smelled sesame oil before and you, you smell the sesame shochu, it's like, wow, that's really interesting. It's nutty. It's, it's grainy. It's got this really mild sweetness to it. And if you pour that over ice, it can be really, really nice. So mm. it's, it spoke to, it really brought in a lot of different people, a lot of different young people who were like, wow, this is such a cool thing that we didn't really know anything about. And sales just went through the roof um, from, you know, the 90s through until 2014 when things kind of tailed off finally. Um, the demographic yeah. crunch in Japan being what it is, there's a lot of, a lot of um, senior folks. There are very few young people these days. Um, yeah. So it's kind of, yeah, times are going to get tougher and tougher, obviously. And now the industry yeah. realizes that it needs to start working on, on foreign markets as, as sake has been since the 1970s. So shochu is way behind. Um, I yeah. ended up uh, becoming, I just, I, th I was so fascinated by, the, the, for me, shochu and its, its cousin spirit, awamori, which is from Okinawa, were kind of like the craft beer of the spirits world because they could be right. made from all these different ingredients. They were made in such small quantities by multi-generational family businesses that, I don't know, it, for me, there was something from my experience in a, in a craft beer brewery that really, really seemed to, to fit in lockstep with these new things that I was learning about the, the spirits industry. And yeah. so I just spent a ton of time down south. I would go down any chance I, I had. I wasn't making a lot of money, so I, so I couldn't go that, f that often, but would just kind of rock up to distilleries with very little. This kind of spurred me. This caused me to start studying Japanese a little bit, but just kind of knock yeah. on the doors like, hey, can I see? <laughs> I, I, uh, and they were they were like no get out of here weirdo they're, they're like gaijin go away go <laughs> exactly. away go, get like, away from it but um and the first i mean, it took a while for me to be able to get into my first really small distillery and and kind of poke around but what ended up working in my favor was that you know i wouldn't just go for a night i would be there for for a few nights i'd take a long weekend or something and i'd be down there and i'd strike out at a distillery they wouldn't let me in um, they'd let me into the tasting room, but they wouldn't let me see anything. And eventually I would, I would, I was out drinking at night and I would meet enough of the locals and word got out real quick. Um, and they'd say, yeah. Hey, there's a, there's a gringo here, um, from Tokyo. He lives in Tokyo. He's from the States originally. He's harmless. Um, he's, you know, and he just wants to learn how it's made. So if just, and yeah. eventually some distilleries, my, my reputation had preceded me. And they're like, oh, you're the weirdo who's in town, aren't you? Um, cool, it's a yeah. slow day. Just keep your hands in your pockets. Don't touch anything and, and we'll, we'll show you what we can. And that's where it started. Um, and that was back in the early aughts. And I was smitten. I loved it. I loved the people that were involved. Mm -hmm. I loved these families. Um, I loved how, I loved the attention to detail. I loved yeah. how much they cared. And I recognized the backbreaking work that was involved because I did it in a beer brewery. So I was like, I get this. I respect yeah. it. I, 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 I understand where your motivation comes from. And I, and I love that. And so mm. I just decided very quickly that, okay, I have a new thing I need to do with my life. And that is to tell the world about these drinks because they've been around yeah. for... 500, 600 years, and nobody outside of Japan has ever heard of them, which for me mm. felt really, really criminal. It was like, how is this possible? It outsells sake in Japan, but nobody's heard of it. So I started doing all sorts of tastings and seminars. I was just, everything I was learning, I would go back to Tokyo and I'd have a, I'd, you know, rent out a, a cafe or a restaurant or a bar, get a bunch of people in. We'd do a, a show to an awamori tasting. And yeah. it was fun. It was great. I was meeting lots of people and I was, I was, you know, affecting the way that people viewed shochu. Um, mm. But it was, it was, um, it started to kind of backfire on me because what ended up happening was I was hoping to speak to people from other countries, but then 90% of the customers at these events would be Japanese. 
And they just wanted yeah. to hear about shochu from an outsider's view. So I was like, wow. ah, well, this isn't really working. Um, okay, so then I needed to find a bigger megaphone. And I did that by starting working on my book, The Shochu Handbook, which eventually was published right. in 2014. Um, that was a ticket to lots more speaking opportunities around the world about these drinks. Uh, I eventually became a cabinet office, Japan cabinet office, office designated ambassador for the spirits categories. And I was, you know, showing up at Ran. I was at Vin Expo in Bordeaux, France, which of course is a wine exhibition, but I was yeah. doing seminars about shochu and awamori because, you know, it's kind of out, it's a left field type of, of uh, throw, but people are like, what are you doing here? I'm like, hey, I'm here to, I'm here to talk about shochu. You want a drink? And that was, that was going for a while, but the, the process was really slow. And as, as many times as people, I mean, the, the, pro, the progress was really, I remember being really excited when people had heard of Shochu before and they knew that it was from Japan. And that was as yeah. far as we got. And that took years, right. right? Yeah. And I was like, this is too damn slow. I can't handle this. So in starting in about late 2018, all the way through 2019, where we were, there were these opportunities that were starting to show up, and it was and it was a a chance to really get some skin in the game, so to speak. And right. in March of 2020, we started Honkaku Spirits, which is an import company of Japanese indigenous spirits, based in New York. Amazing right. timing to quit your your full time professorship at the university, March of 2020. <laughs> Um, so and start an international business. That's exactly. the best time to, to do it. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Uh, so that's a whole like that whole process is is probably a couple of podcasts unto itself. <laughs> but that's where I this is where I am now. Um, I still do those those uh, events and speaking opportunities. I just did one tonight um, with the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association with a bunch of ambassadors and consular staff from all of the different you know, consulates and, and embass, embassies in, in Tokyo and just introducing them to these drinks. But now I spend most of my time trying to figure out how to create this new category in the U.S. beverage alcohol market. And yeah. that's, a, that's a very, very big ask. It's a tall order. Um, this, is, this is not a test. You know, we are, we, we are doing this for real. And, um, you know, so now I am still an ambassador for the category, but I do also have a portfolio of brands that I really love that we're trying to sell into the U.S. Yeah, I think at the moment in the U.S., they're quite big on like hard seltzer, which is just, you know, fizzy water with a bit of gin in it or something. It's not, it's not really anything <laughs> that's that amazing. It's ama you know, there are mountains of that it. stuff when you walk into any liquor store. It's right front and center so that people can see it and... I mean, they, yeah. they're in the they're in they're inside the shop for like thirty five seconds. Go grab a couple of crates, pay, and walk straight back out. It's pretty wild. Yeah, I think it's it's hard to get people to try new spirits as well because a lot of people are used to mixing spirits in cocktails and they go, oh, well, I don't like vodka. Okay, I don't like gin. I don't like this. But some spirits, you know, like whiskey, brandy, you know, even wine to a degree, which isn't a spirit, but, you know, alcoholic drinks have different flavor profiles if you're willing to give them that right tasting experience. So maybe you're not in a nightclub just trying to get as drunk as possible. You know, right. you're, you're sat down over a drink, you know, with a, with a professional, with a sommelier or, or, you know, that type of person who will explain to you what you might taste. And you can tell them, oh, actually, no, I'm tasting some of this and some of that. And they go, yes, this is why you're tasting this. This is why you're tasting that. And I feel like if more people had that opportunity or allowed themselves to have the opportunity to experience alcohol in totally new environments where the alcohol is the focus, you can have a better experience. And, you know, I, my personal thing is, it's not always about getting completely drunk. Sometimes it's about having you know, a different flavor that you go, oh, actually, I really do like soju. And I could drink it, you know, this way. I could drink it that way. I could drink it mm -hmm. casually. You know, I could have right. one a night. And, you know, there's, I'm sure there's some kind of hidden health benefits to it that people try to promote. But yeah, I, I, I'm very sure that there's a, yeah, there's a there's a change in people's attitudes towards alcohol. Sure. And it's, it's going in a direction where people might want to have 
a different experience as opposed to like completely stop drinking in that regard, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And you, you touched on quote unquote health, health benefits. Let me be clear. There's, you don't drink for your health, but <laughs> there, there is, um, there are a few reasons why show another couple of reasons why shochu and awamori are so popular in Japan. Um, number one is that they, they don't have any residual sugar in them. Uh, so they're incredibly low calorie. Um, and uh, so if you compare them to, well, even comparing them to sake, they have considerably fewer calories per, um, per serving than, than sake or beer or wine or really any other spirit. So that's one thing that people love about them. Um, another thing, and uh, this, is, this is actually something that the industry loves to tell people, is that there's no purines. Um, so if you suffer from gout, then, you know, shochu and awamori are going to be maybe your, one of your better bets. In ter- if you happen to be a drinker or you like to have the occasional tipple, then shochu and, yeah. and awamori are not going to cause a flare-up. Um, and, you know, there's no additives allowed in these drinks. It's just that's how the, that's the law. So you can't put any sweeteners, umami enhancers, anything in there. Uh, after distillation, it's just water and thyme that can be added to the yeah. drink. That's it. And that's, that's T-I-M-E, not T-H-Y-M-E, of course. <laughs> Although time might be I, I, pretty interesting. I was going to say, with with this kind of process, do you get age sochus or do you get age awamoris and that kind of stuff? Do they have better flavor profiles? Because I know there's a lot, there's a reason why there's a lot of new gin brands that start up. You can literally make gin, you know, in a couple months, if not a couple weeks, and then whatever's there is, is what you put out. But exactly. other, other spirits, once you age them, they taste a lot better. They take, yeah, in some cases they do taste better. In some cases they just have evolved. Um, and then mm-hmm. it would be hard to say that they're subjectively better or even objectively better. Um, if we start with awamori, awamori has a really, really interesting maturation culture. Um, awamori is made in Okinawa prefecture and it's only made from rice. And most of the product that hits the market is very young. It might be aged for between really only six months to a year. And that's just enough time to really let some of the more vol- volatile compounds in the, in the spirit to off gas. And, mm. you know, the, the spirit as a whole chills out. If you happen to have the space, the time and the financial resources, then you might have a bunch of those uh, really large earthenware pots, the amphora, that you can rest the awamori in and depending on uh, not every brand is the same but some brands when you age them for extensive periods five years ten years in these clay pots they they get the the breakdown in the organic compounds reveals new esters and new aromas and one of those that's really fun is vanilla a lot of vanilla can reveal itself and then other some dark sugar notes like caramel and maple syrup uh, maple anyway and um one thing I love about awamori is that it has this really good mushroomy umami component to it. And when you add yeah. to that nuance something that's a little bit on the sweeter side or on the, you know, on the spice side, it can be really, really good. Um, so the, the aging, the maturation that happens in the awamori world is longstanding, well-respected, and they also have this old school Solera type system that's common for sherry, but they do it with clay pots, of course, not with wooden barrels. And um, it's not as common anymore, but it's a very cool way to uh, fractional blend your spirit over vintage, vintage after vintage. Um, Up in the shochu world, a little bit further to the north, you get mostly tank, like, you know, stainless steel or enamel line tank aging but then there is a lot of clay pot aging and there is some oak cask aging these days and yes it changes it incredibly as as you can imagine um even with just a couple of years exposed to the wood yeah and and for the listener that doesn't know this in japan there's different prefectures that are you know specialists in certain things some are known for their meat some are known for certain types of cheese or certain types of alcohol and such like that so Mm. you know i assume in, in the north is where they're making shochu at its best and in the south is where they're making awamori at its best type thing that's kind of how the the prefectures are split yeah i i mean actually if if we think about it, you're right the awamori is made all the way down in okinawa 
And then to yeah. the north of that is uh, Kyushu Island. Kyushu right. is one of the four main islands. There's seven prefectures there. And that's where most of the um, shochu is produced. Or most of the, I'm going to take that back. Shochu is produced in every prefecture in Japan, all 47. Yeah. The really good stuff, all of the most famous brands is produced on Kyushu Island, honestly. Mm. Um, and it's, and the rest of the country makes shochu, but they almost always make kasutori shochu, which is basically shochu produced from the, the sake lees, the lees, the, the, the rice solids that are left over from the sake making process. So what they do, right. what those breweries will do is they'll distill the lees, make a little bit of what's called kasutori shochu. And then that those rice solids, because they've had the alcohol removed from them, can be used for a variety of, of things. They can be used as um, fertilizer for the next year's you know crop of, of rice. They can also be used in in confection you know different snacks um and then sometimes they, right. i think they in some cases they process it into livestock feed um right. but most most of the really sorry that i'm gonna, my my bias is coming out here but most of the good shochu is produced in kyushu the really interesting stuff uh and i'm a sweet potato shochu guy so that's definitely southern kyushu um is the is the hq for that it's it's really really stellar i'm yeah. i'm uh yeah, I, I will talk anybody's ear off about these things, but I know we have a time limit, so. <laughs> oh, I mean, there's no, there's no time limit if you're passionate about something. You know, I, I love to hear people talk about things they're passionate about. And you said, you know, oh, my bias is coming out here. It's like, well, you're the expert. So really, your bias <laughs> is valid. You've definitely tasted more shochu and more awamori than me and the listener combined, probably. But um, so you started Honkaku Spirits and, you know, you said you started it in the midst of the pandemic. Right. So what what kind of... What did that look like? Because you're trying to get, you know, a product that's made in the country that you're currently based in back over to the US, which is, you know, the other side of the world and, and get it sold in a in an environment that's, you know, usually a social environment or at least get it to somebody who would experience it much like you did in a social environment and then maybe take some home for their collection. Right. So what did that look like? Uh, um, it, yeah, that great, very important question. And... I don't know how to, how do I even approach the answer to this? So because of the pandemic and everybody has the same story, every business had the same struggle in in one shape or fashion. And, you know, nothing happened like we thought it was going to. Everything took six times as long and everything was 10 times as expensive as we had planned for. Um, so it was, it was uh, nuts, honestly, um, trying to manage a, an international team remotely. I hired, we were hiring people that had never met face to face. I'm sure a lot of companies have a similar story. They were all working remotely and we were trying to, we're, we are trying to establish a new category of spirits in the United States. Now, of course, shochu and awamori were already being sold in the U S before we arrived, mm. um, long before we arrived, but they're being sold by massive food companies that just happened to carry shochu as well. They they specialize in Japanese foodstuffs that they import, right. knives, everything in the kitchen you can imagine, all of the condiments that you could ever dream of, um, and everything in between. They also happen to have hit a home run with sake over the last 15 right. years. And at some point they were like, well, shochu must be next. So we better, we better, you know, bring in a bunch of that. And they did. Um, and they know nothing about it. They don't know how to sell it. They don't know how to teach it. And they don't have the energy to put the legwork in to get it done. So shochu looked like it was fits and starts. It was, it really looked like it was going to have its moment. And then, you know, it, everything kind of withdrew and then back and forth and back and forth. And then the pandemic hit. Um, fortunately, prior to us and since we've opened, a number of very small outfits, importers have, have kind of, taken the mantle and and started bringing in their own preferred cadre of brands, um, generally smaller than the portfolio that we have put together. And that's not meant as a slight in any way, shape or form. Um, they're very particular about the brands that they have selected, which is fantastic. And they're putting their, they're putting their back into educating this, this consumer base about this 
entirely new thing from Japan. That's not new. It's it's 600 years old, 500 years old, but it is yeah. new as far as anybody over there is concerned. And mm. so the the most challenging thing, and I and I am trying to answer the question. I promise. I know I'm I'm of going <laughs> I'm fishing off to the side here. The most difficult thing here. And this is a foible of alcohol sales, especially spirits in the U.S., is some people, some of your listeners will have maybe heard of the three-tiered system in the United mm. States, which is very different from how we do business in Japan. And I do, um, I do have a, an alcohol exporter over here, which I, I set up prior to, or not set up, I, I joined prior to uh, setting up Honkaku Spirits. And that was yeah. to be able to control pricing on both the export side and the import side and keep keep everything down so that the price offered to consumers was as competitive as we could get it. Yeah. Uh, but the most challenging thing, and this will probably always be the case, is within the U.S.'s three-tiered system where mm. you can't be both an importer and a distributor. So, and... You, and in most states, the retail shops, the restaurants, the bars, um, also the liquor stores can only buy from the distributor. So the importer can't sell directly to the, to the places where the consumer is going to get the product. There's, right. It's the three-tiered system. The, the middle part, the middle part, the distributor has a hell of a lot of leverage in that right. formula. They decide yeah. what they're going to put their energy in to. They, they make or break brands. You know, yeah. So, trying to trying to figure that out as an academic, as a guy who right. has been teaching writing and and marketing for years, to to switch into all of a sudden I'm entrepreneur entrepreneur. How do you say that word? Entrepreneur mode. And you got there. <laughs> I got there eventually. I'm sure that sounded incredibly elegant. Um, but to, to make that switch was not a natural transition for me. And yeah. Yeah, I'm still, I'm learning every, every day I learned five or six new things that I'm terrible at. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that's, that's the beauty of this journey. And fortunately, I've been, we've been very lucky with our hires. We've got, a, a, we, are, we are, I don't use this word often. We are blessed, um, honestly. Yeah. We got so lucky. Uh, and, and, uh, I don't think that will always be the case. If we ever start to scale at a pace that is not very, very considered, I guarantee we're going to get some office records in there. Um, but yeah. right now we have powerful, passionate people. We're so lucky. Um, and, uh, you know, they, I learn things from them all the time. And what do I have to offer? Well, I can... I can teach them about these drinks and then I need to need to follow them into battle to try and try and get this in front of people. And fortunately in the U S market anyway, for the most part, people are very open to new things. They love new things. They love, they like yeah. to try um, something that's fresh. They like to have quote unquote authentic experiences. Um, the trick is staying front of mind for people. Because right. they love to try new things, which means that they're going to try something new soon again, and they're going to forget right. about you in yeah. three to five business days. So you got to be going back and you got to go back again and again and again. You got to keep on providing them with really exciting experiences or you get left behind. And we're a small company and we can't afford that. <laughs> so yeah. it's a, it's, it's been wild, um, you know, and I, I don't really know. I think I've sort of answered your question. It's, it's, just, it's just unfolding in every direction at all times in so many unanticipated ways. It's awesome and it's horrifying. And I, I love it. I absolutely yeah. adore it, but I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of, one of my previous guests, he said that it's like, you know, you jump off a cliff and you build your plane on the way down type thing rather than that's <laughs> rather than good. getting all your ducks in your row and, and, and then going that way. He said, it, it's like that. But you said you, you made some good hires and obviously, you know, 
in the pandemic, you weren't able to get out there and, and talk to people and find people. H how did you find such good employees? Like what, what was your kind of strategy for finding these people to work in what is, you know, a very niche type of business? A lot of people may have worked with alcohol, but have they worked with alcohol that is, you know, like shoju and like, like Awamori? That's a, yeah. We honestly went through connections. Basically, we right. put feelers out there. We said, we're looking for these types of folks. Do you know anybody? And through our network, we just happened to run into um, some some folks who were moving on from one position onto something else. And there was an opportunity to talk and we were able to convince them to uh, join the team. Uh, one one guy, um, our guy, Bruce, force in nature, um, he had just retired actually from running a, a, a wine importer in the States. And he was, he was legendary. I mean, he, he brought that company from zero to hero and, um, he was about to enjoy a very well-deserved retirement. Uh, but he's competitive, like you would not believe. And we knew that, and we were introduced to him. We got to talk to him and, and, um, it was a pretty easy, it was pretty easy. We're like, Hey, Hey man, um, we we respect everything that we that you've done. We know your 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 background, your history. You've done amazing work. Here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to we're trying to start a new category in the U.S. And they say it can't be done. And he was like, "Huh? Can't be done?" They said it can't be done. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I'm in. <laughs> I can do it. I'm the guy for this. Hook, line, and sinker. Um, so we, you know, yeah, he's he his his he's worked as an importer as a as a killer salesperson and as a distributor he's like he can put on all these different hats and we've got him keeping us from making stupid decisions basically so that's just one example of how fortunate we've been and all of these connections came through the network so um yeah, yeah we are we are incredibly fortunate and i and i really don't look forward to trying to hire again because i don't think we can i'm not sure how long we could replicate this um this luck yeah uh, yeah we got a couple other guys who are absolutely the same kind of like you're looking for you're looking for a b plus and then we got an a plus 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 on these on these folks uh, yeah man we probably run completely out of luck i bet the next five hires are gonna just completely tank us <laughs> Well, th th I think one thing that people ha have to learn over time is that you, you either hire slowly and fire fast or you hire fast, fire fast. Either way, if somebody's in your business that's not you know working out for you, they have to go because yep. they're costing you money. And if anything, they're damaging your brand or damaging your business and, you know, damaging the, the culture. Day, yeah, exactly. All these things are important. And, you know, I I've had a few people on this podcast that have completely remote teams and they speak about how they build, you know, remote cultures and all that kind of stuff. You know, I think one problem has been, you know, certain times language barriers. So there sure. could be times where you've got a whole team in the Philippines. They're off in one Slack channel, all speaking Tagalog and you don't speak Tagalog. So you don't know what they're talking about and they know you don't know what you're talking about. But if you've got someone who reads it out to you, go, oh yeah, they're, they're slagging you off. They're saying this, they're saying that. And it's always about kind of, you know, as the entrepreneur, as the, as the business owner, it's always about kind of, you know, much like a, a conductor for an orchestra, you're kind of keeping everybody in time and keeping everybody going in the in the right direction type thing. Yeah, yeah, that's exact. That's exactly what it is. Just herding cats a lot of time. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's you know, it's How do you it's go good. On. It's good. I really, really have learned to love it. I loved it from the start, mostly just because I'm I'm finally getting to really promote show to an Almori on an international level, and I don't have to, you know sit or uh, you know go to the government here in japan putting in proposals and asking for scraps and you know doing very little to move the needle hopefully we can yeah get some real gale gale force winds hitting this needle real soon yeah you're 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 the master of your own destiny right now as opposed to being subject to other people's types of things and i, I guess one thing i want to ask is you know obviously you know don't give away the the secret sauce but definitely give us a, a taste if you will how do you break a, a new product into a new market? Because this is, you know, something that US people wouldn't have had before, wouldn't have heard of. So first of all, you got to get past that thing. Oh, it's a Japanese spirit. It's 500 years old. Okay. But how do I, how do I interact with this thing? You know, how do I actually get this into somebody's liquor cabinet or that type of thing? Great question. The, the thing that we 
thought long and hard about is who are our, who, who are, who's the customer base? And that's not most people, honestly. Um, Shochu and Awamori are really like for true spirits fans, for folks who really love to geek out about spirits or drinks in general, I suppose, I suppose uh, wine drinkers, you know, also beer drinkers, the craft, you know, the, the, the hop heads are probably going to be amenable to the stories that are part and parcel with Shochu yeah. and Awamori. And so we had to figure out how to get in front of them. Uh, that obviously precludes us from even approach, approaching, geez, 90% of restaurants and bars, probably about 95% of liquor stores. And we went out there looking for signs that showed a place cared enough to possibly want to be the early mover on this new category. And right. the the telltale sign for me was, for a liquor store anyway, a place that has a really good mess call selection tells right. me that there's some nerds in there working the floor. These guys are <laughs> hand-selling mezcal and they, are, right. they care about it. And you yeah. can go in there and they... Even if you're in there looking for gin, they're eventually going to bend the conversation back to an agave spirit of one sort or another. And those are the types of folks, the hearts and minds in those women and men, you want to win those over. Because you win one of those folks over in every store and you have like an amazing evangelist. So yeah. that was, that's, that's what we've been doing. And the, the pandemic, quite honestly, um, especially because we jumped on it so early, was a boon to our ability to talk directly with folks who could help us move the needle. We yeah. were able to figure out who the, the influential folks were and we started yeah. talking to them directly. And early right. in the pandemic, you probably remember, everybody was stoked to get online. You know, they're like, I... Yeah. Everybody was at home. But it was as well. Like, this is great. This is so much fun. I can't, I get to, this is, in the early days that there was about a month there, maybe April, 2020, when like being yeah. on Zoom was a lot of fun, you know? Yeah. You didn't hate it. Yeah. We learned. Yeah. But. Uh, <laughs> we did. But, yep. But it's, uh, you know, it was an opportunity to directly reach out to people. And we were, that was silver lining, 100% for us. Uh, it wouldn't have been that easy if not for the pandemic. So if yeah. there's one good thing I could say about the pandemic, it's that we had easy access to a bunch of people that it would have been impossible to get a, get a hold of. They probably would have been like, yeah. yeah, not, not this week. Can you contact me in like three months? You know? Yeah. So yeah, we don't, we don't stock anything until the end of the quarter type thing. And <sighs> there's, there's something in that, in that whole entrepreneur that started in the pandemic type thing. It's much like the people that started their businesses in the 2008 recession. It's not about the environment mm. because what you what you come to realize is people will spend their money on what they want to, despite what what you think is going on. Like, yes, obviously, if there's a yeah. war going on, then the, the local cinema might not be open. Sure. But realistically, you know, people are always going to want to spend money on these these things that are technically luxuries, you know, alcohol, cigars and that type of thing. Yeah. And if you're into it, you don't spend your money in other places like other people. You're not really buying takeaways, all that kind of stuff that eats up your money. You go, I'm going to buy a $100, $200 bottle of alcohol and I'm going to enjoy that in good company. And and that is the market that that you're going for. You're not trying to sell, you know, Bud Lights (laughs) at a dollar a piece. It's a a certain type of clientele. And um, it's good that you've identified that because some people go, oh, you know, you go to someone, oh, who's your ideal customer? Everybody. Okay. so Everybody needs to have this. Okay. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah. yeah so so you kind of you're two years in now just we're well, just over two years in so you know coming yeah. on to three nearly yeah what is the kind of the the ongoing plans you know because i'm assuming you're in this business hopefully for the rest of your life so what is the ongoing plans for the next year five years ten years what does that look like in your head christopher the ultimate goal the mission here is to get japan koji fermented spirits into that's shochu, that's aomori, it's a bunch of other things now too. Into every every bar and restaurant around the world. Now that's a that's right. huge, and it yeah. is possible. Now our portfolio happens to be a little bit pricey, so it's not going to be our products. But I just 
I am a category ambassador. I do care about the entire industry succeeding. And I'm yeah. another bias is that a lot of these folks are my friends. So yeah. I, I want them to be able to hand these businesses off to their kids. Um, right. You know, we've got um, listeners out there can't don't realize this, but uh, Sam can see the background and this is my home office and it's basically a bar. And yes. on the on the over my shoulder, I have a bunch of our own brands that we distribute in the United States. And some of these distilleries are fifth generation, sixth generation distilleries, meaning they're like they're close to 200 years old. And, yeah. you know, they are always worried about, OK, how do I hand this off? And, you know, and then the kids, there are fewer kids than before. Um, not all yeah. the kids, the kids generally don't want a distillery or brewery floor job. It's hard work. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very, very hard work in, when you're making the product because using koji, making koji, uh, K-O-J-I that I mentioned before, it's used to make everything from uh, soy sauce and mirin and miso, sake, shochu, aomori, everything that tastes really good in Japan almost is made with koji. Yeah. In order to make that in a beverage alcohol context, you have to... Basically, you don't sleep. You have to tend to it every couple of hours while you're making it. Oh, man. And you, you have to like hand, you have to, you know, kind of mix it by hand and make sure that the, it's all aerated appropriately and that the humidity is perfect. It's it's really hard work. So yeah. a lot of young people see that and they're like, damn, that's some, that's a good way to get some gray hairs by the time you're about 27 and yeah, that's uh, a good way to get carpal tunnel <laughs> that too that too um yeah. and to wreck your back uh just yeah. for good measure so it's it's a delicate um proposition and there's a lot of unease about getting these businesses into the next generation i'm sure that there's lots of businesses from a wide swath of of the economy that have similar concerns agriculture of course being one of them but um i i really I really just want these family businesses not to disappear. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's honestly one of the reasons why that that's the reason why basically everything in our portfolio is from these tiny little places uh, that it's, I'm actually, I'm really proud of this. There are a number of brands in our portfolio that I can't easily get in Tokyo and I'm only a two hour flight from where they make them, but you can get these brands in, pretty nice places in in the united states and that's really cool now that pisses off a lot of the avid fans of these brands in japan because basically our company in new york is is shorting their supply <laughs> we're, we're oh. basically peeling off a, a pretty large allocation and we are uh selling it into decent establishments in the united states new york chicago uh, the Bay Area, Los Angeles, Atlanta, Florida, Washington, D.C., Texas is a big market for us now. And it's, I, I have gotten some kind of tongue-in-cheek, slightly frustrated text messages from shochu nerds out there who are like, I can't believe you guys are selling this in the States and we can't even get this in Japan, in most parts of Japan, especially in, uh, you know, the major cities like Tokyo and Osaka. So I'm quite stoked about that. Um, but it is, it, it honestly is, doesn't, doesn't really matter how I feel about these brands. What, what ends up happening at the end of the day is the consumer gets to decide, the consumer votes on what they're going to buy again. And that's our serious challenge. How do we inspire people to keep on thinking about these, about this category, about Japanese indigenous spirits? How do we inspire people to, um, you know, people who work in, in liquor stores, how do we inspire them to keep on pushing these products, to keep hand selling them? How do we inspire bartenders to believe in these stories, these people, the, the places, the processes and put these into cocktails. Um, this is this is our our night and day challenge, and it's something that I don't have the answers to. And we're constantly trying new things. 
and we're we're always trying to find ways to make other people's jobs easier for them, especially the sales team at our distrib our our distributors, and we have several in the United States. Um, like I said, I I I don't know what I'm doing. I'm learning it on the job, but it is it is incredibly rewarding, and I do wake up in the morning and I'm and I'm grateful that I have opportunities to do something that I love so much. Yeah, and, and for the listener out there that might want to try some sh some shoju or some awumori, what would you suggest they do? Because, you know, this person could be in Germany, they could be in England, they could be in the US. Do you know what I mean? What can they do to get this, these great flavors in their mouth? Are you suggesting they hop on the next flight to Japan and get into their local izakaya and get going like that? Or, it's not a horrible know? idea. <laughs> <laughs> There's, there are an increasing number of places in Europe, in um, Oceania, in South America, in America, certainly in Asia, um, some parts of Africa that are starting to carry a very limited range of shochu and awamori. Europe, for instance, there's a great outfit in Germany um, called Ginza Berlin. And I think they, I, I know, I have a friend in Ireland who has ordered product from them online. So I guess that's an option. And they have a they have a lot of really interesting stuff, a lot of very high quality stuff. Um, that's and they've been they've been killing it over there. I have a lot of respect for them. And so maybe that's an option if you are in um Europe and can have things delivered uh online orders. I'm not sure what the liquor laws are within the EU or and even with, with from outside the EU. I don't even know. England, yeah. England's not in the EU that's anymore, true. but that's a conversation right. for a different time. It's a different podcast. <laughs> but, yep. Yeah, that's a completely different podcast that'll yep. go in all the wrong ways and we would need a lot of shoju and a lot of awamori to get through that. <laughs> I bet. But yep. yeah, I mean, to be honest, I, I'm now interested and I will be thinking, because before I used to think to myself, oh yeah, if I'm in a, you know, a Japanese or a Chinese restaurant or whatever, I'll try, you know, ashai beer or a bit of sake. But now I'm thinking, okay, I need to be looking for the sochu. I need to be looking for the awumori. And I might even go out and get some and bring that to, uh, I have a group of people that we drink whiskey and we bring a whiskey expert who brings bits of peat and bits of whatever oh, else. Cool. It's like, this is what's That's in it. This great. is what makes it. Yeah. So I might have to introduce that into the circle and be like, hey, we're going to have a Japanese themed night and no, we're not drinking sake. We're drinking this stuff that my lovely friend Christopher told me to drink. Well, but if you if you can, you can also just figure out where people are coming from. And if you have, obviously, if you have a whiskey drinker, then a barley shochu makes a lot of sense. But if you have like a red wine drinker, then a sweet potato shochu made with purple sweet potatoes or red sweet potatoes is a is kind of a logical way for them to enter the category. So there's, there's a lot of different um, on-ramps and uh, it can be a lot of fun. Now, what you have access to, of course, in... Uh, whatever part of the UK you happen to be living in is obviously um, one factor that you're yeah. going to have to contend Luckily, with. Luckily, I'm but... in the most connected part of the UK. I'm in London. So <laughs> it's not too bad. I, I'm sure I can find somewhere probably in Central that's selling, you know, every brand that you would tell me is the best brand possible. So I will be keeping an eye peeled for this. Cool. But one thing I'm picking up from you, Christopher, is you're really, really passionate about these these types of drinks and these people behind these drinks and the stories that they have and all this kind of stuff. But one thing I want to ask you, and you know, this is a question I ask every guest, but all the answers are completely different. What is it about what you do that brings you the most joy? I think it, I think it actually is the education piece. It really is just telling people something new about the world that they didn't realize existed. And so I, I often, I did this just earlier tonight when I was at work. I, I started off by talking about how, you know, the shochu and aomori industry in Japan, there is more shochu and aomori produced every year than tequila in Mexico. Right. And, and you know, 76, this is 2019 numbers, 76% of tequila is exported. It leaves Mexico, much of it going to Europe and and the rest of the Americas. Less than, less than one half of 1% of shochu and aomori is exported. It's almost 99.5%, right. more than that, is consumed here in Japan. It is Japan's right. best kept secret 
on a yeah. on a gustatory level, on a culinary level. And yeah. it's it's that is so exciting for people to hear. Uh, it's still early days where where you know you can be the one in the know on this. No, nobody knows about it. You know, so that's yeah. a lot. That's very gratifying for a lot of people, and and just kind of revealing these things. I, I I'm from an educational background. I really, really get excited about teaching, and yeah. and when when you also get to pour a drink along with the stories that you're telling, even better. Um, so yeah, the results, the results, um, everything kind of works out, I guess. Where can the people find you online? I am uh, Chris Pellegrini on on Twitter. That continues to exist. And at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. You can find out more about these spirits, about these indigenous beverages from Japan if you Google honkakuspirits.com. Honkaku is H-O-N-K-A-K-U. That's our company's website. But there's a lot of educational material on there. I'm very easy to track down online. So if you have any questions or one thing that's become kind of a, a recurring theme here is people will end up in a restaurant somewhere and there's, oh, geez, there's a shochu section on this on this menu. And they'll take a photo of it and they'll DM it to me. And they're like, what should I get? And usually many times if I'm awake, <laughs> I can respond within minutes. And I hope that will be helpful for some people. Can't promise that I'll get, be able to get back to you immediately, but... I do tend to get back to people event, uh, within the day. And uh, so, yeah, as you can tell, I, I do have energy. I love to talk. Um, I love to tell stories. And if you would like to learn more, then, yeah, please reach out. Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend. 